According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me one more time in the book of Joshua. Tonight we will be finishing the book of Joshua. So when we come back Sunday morning, it will be uh, the book of Judges. So stay tuned for that. But this is day 92 in the Through the Bible reading calendar, and we are now ready for Joshua 22, 23, and 24. Before we get started, remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study tonight. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before you tonight thankful for grace and truth, rejoicing in your faithfulness, and Father, calling upon your faithfulness once again as this hour now is set before us. Uh, we thank you that the Word of God is not dependent upon uh, human ability or how smart we are to figure things out. Father, it's all about your faithfulness to open our eyes, your faithfulness in the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So we are uh, entirely dependent upon you and your grace tonight to bless our time in your truth. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we uh, left off last night with the last details out of chapter 21, and we've seen the uh, all 12 tribes now have had their territories marked out. Uh, they know what's in front of them as it relates to what they need to do now as tribes to go in and, and finish the tribal conquest after the national conquest. And, uh, and then to subdivide each of these tribes into the various clans and uh, families then that will uh, make up the, the tribal structure itself. Uh, the last bit we were dealing with in chapter 21, uh, 20 and 21 centered on the uh, cities of refuge and then uh, all of the Levitical cities. We spent the time last night running through those 48 locations. So tonight, moving on to chapter 22, Following the national conquest of the land of Canaan, Joshua dismissed Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh to return to their land in the Transjordan. And this was the deal that they struck when they had requested to have land on the east side of the Jordan, and at first Moses was opposed to it. But then when they explained to him their reasons and, and very reasonably brought up the, the request again and assured him that they weren't ducking combat, they weren't hiding from the conquest duties, then, uh, then he he relented and, and gave them under permissive will the uh, the opportunity to uh, to establish their uh, tribal land grants on the eastern side of the river. So let's look at these first nine verses here of Joshua twenty two. Joshua summoned the Reubenites and Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh and said to them, "You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have listened to my voice and all that I commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days." to this day, but have kept the charge or the commandment of the Lord your God. And now Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord your God, has given rest to your brothers as he spoke to them. Therefore, turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan. And so this is a dismissal of their tribal armies. They're now uh, permitted to return to their wives and children and the, the uh, livestock and the property that they had left on the eastern side. He goes on though, verses 5 through 9 now, only be very careful to observe the commandment of the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. 
I mean, just because you're going to be over there on the east side, don't think that you're going to skate, okay? You've got you to serve the Lord God. You are also a part of the, the theocracy, the covenant nation of Israel, and your tribes are, uh, will be held to the same standard that the tribes on the western side are held to. So, uh, serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua gave a possession among their brothers westward beyond the Jordan. So when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. Remember, uh, Manasseh was the tribe that had the east side and the west side within the same tribe. So now he's going to bless west Manasseh as well. He said to them, return to your tents with great riches and with very much livestock and silver, gold, bronze, iron, with very many clothes. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home and departed from the sons of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Remember, Shiloh was the location where they set up the tabernacle. It's the first resting location of the tabernacle. It won't be the last. And of course the permanent building we know uh, because uh, we, we cheated. We, we looked ahead in the reading. Now we know because we know that the Jerusalem is where uh, Solomon will be building the temple. Anyway, for now the, the tabernacle is at Shiloh, which means the ark is at Shiloh, which means the high priest is at Shiloh, which means the Shekinah glory is at Shiloh. And this is where they come to report and get their uh, marching orders to depart from the combat operations. Almost like in uh, Band of Brothers when they were uh, waiting for their lottery numbers to come up so that they could cycle back stateside. Or at first they thought they were going to go to uh, fight in the Pacific and they thought that they had another war to go fight. But then, uh, then the number came up and said no, that they, were, they would be returning to the states. Anyway, that's what we're dealing with here, the, the dismissal of the, uh, of the troops. So, um, yes, at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had possessed according to the command of the Lord through Moses. All right, so they, uh, they're permitted to depart. And how long does it take for a misunderstanding to arise? <laughs> how long does it take for there to be some question about those east siders, you know? And it seems like that's the way it's always going to be no matter what the culture is, no matter what the century is, no matter what, you know, it's the same thing today, you know, and it's not always east and west, sometimes it's north and south depending on the the geography of the city or the state or the country or or what have you. But in Washington state when I grew up, of course, there's the west side and there's the east side and ne- and ne'er the twain shall meet cuz the mountain range was the least of what separated them. The politics separated them more than the mountains. Anyway, on the way back to their own land, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh built a large replica altar at the Jordan River. What's, what's the problem with that? You know? Well, let's read about it. Verse 10, when they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. Okay, seemed like a good idea at the time. Why are they doing this? <laughs> Did the Lord command it? Are they, are they, you know, are they priests and Levites? No, they're Reubenites, Gadites, and Manassites. Um, what, what do they think they're doing? It's, it's at least a puzzle, and you would think that someone would get curious, and uh, they do. In verse 11, the sons of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan on the side belonging to the sons of Israel. 
Yeah, so, all right. They did it. Israel said, look what they did. And when the sons of Israel heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up against them in war. Ah, okay, so I, clearly they are objecting. <laughs> they're, they're taking issue. They have a problem with what's going on. Uh, we know, if we look down lower in the text, their reasons, but we don't get those reasons until, until verses 21 through 29. What they're doing is they're setting it up as a memorial to stand as a reminder uh, of, their, uh, of their part in Israel to future generations. And, and I don't want to spoil that. Let's just keep going through this text here uh, because in verses 11 through 20, the other nine and a half tribes, they just jump to the assumption that this is an idolatrous altar, that these, uh, these three, two and a half tribes are just out there being idolaters. And the proof of it is, look at that, t- look at that altar they just built. All right, so let's look at the rest of this then. So yeah, it's, that, this, is, this is fighting words. It's time to go back to war again. They haven't even finished conquering, their, pacifying their tribes. They haven't finished their tribal conquests yet, but they're ready now to go and destroy Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. So the sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben and to the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh into the land of Gilead. And this is who they dispatch, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, Okay, so there's somebody that doesn't mess around. I mean, we know what Phineas does. When he sees idolatry, he takes care of business. You know, grabs the spear and ends it. And with him, ten chiefs. One chief for each of uh, the father's household from each of the tribes of Israel. And each one of them was the head of his father's household among the thousands of Israel. So it's not, uh, it's not a, an inferior delegation here. And they came to the sons of Reuben. And by the way, that also would have to include the half-tribe, the western Manasseh. Uh, they're going to be sending elders as well. And they come to the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh to the land of Gilead, and they spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord. So it's not really a thus saith the Lord message, but it's a thus says us message. Uh, the whole congregation of the Lord. What is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel, turning away from following the Lord this day by building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day? Now, they're finally asking a question, at least. I mean, they might have done that before they marshaled the armies together. Is not the iniquity of Peor, that was the episode where Phineas and his spear ended the plague, is not the iniquity of Peor enough for us from which we have not cleansed ourselves to this day, although a plague came on the congregation of the Lord? That's curious to me. It makes me wonder, what were the ongoing lingering symptoms of Peor that they continued to bear witness to? even to this day. Anyway, um, is it not enough that you must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. Now part of me actually, you know, I don't want to be too hard on these guys, I can appreciate the fact that they are serious about rooting out idolatry, that they, they want to be holy before the Lord and, and they want to, to, uh, to make it known when they think they're observing idolatry that it's not going to be tolerated. So that apart at least is, is admirable. They go on, if however the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of the possession of the Lord where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or rebel against us by building an altar for yourselves besides the altar of the Lord our God. 
And that's kind of interesting too because they're, they're not wrong about the fact that those east siders are on the wrong side of the river from where the tabernacle is sitting, where the, altar, the real altar is sitting, where the real Ark of the Covenant is sitting and the priesthood and all the rest. That they're going to be over there on the wrong side of the river from uh, the, the Shekinah glory. Okay? And, and just a little bit of a preview in a sense because after Solomon when the kingdom is divided, that northern yeah, that northern kingdom, one of the biggest problems they had was that they didn't have the temple. They didn't have the priesthood. They didn't have the, the, the glory of the Lord. And so they, they did become idolaters. They set up two golden calves. They, they magnified the idolatry because they didn't have the priesthood. They didn't have the, the temple. They're not done yet. they got one more verse here. Uh, verse 20, did not Echan, the son of Zerah, act unfaithfully in the things under the ban and wrath uh, fall on the congregation of Israel? And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. So they're bringing up good examples. Idolatry from the Baal Peor incident, idolatry, uh, uh, rebellion from the, the Achan innocent, uh, incident. And they are not incorrect. Achan and his whole family were killed in that rebellion. So that's their complaint. Now the explanation. And, and you know, these two and a half tribes, they get pretty good at this, right? Uh, they had to do the same thing with Moses when they requested to settle over there. And Moses was immediately like, oh, no, you can't do that. What are you doing? And then they calmly explained, this is what we're doing. And Moses was, oh, okay, that's, that's, that's cool then. Um, something similar happening here. So the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and spoke to the heads of the families of Israel. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And may Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or if in an unfaithful act against the Lord, do not save us this day. If we have built us an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if to offer a burnt offering or grain offering on it, or if to offer sacrifices of peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself require it. So basically they're saying you're wrong and and the Lord's our witness to this. And, and if, if you're right, then the Lord can kill us himself. That's his good pleasure. But truly we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying in time to come your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you, your, uh, sons of Reuben and sons of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your sons may uh, make our sons stop fearing the Lord. So they just turned the tables all together and said, we're concerned about you guys. We're concerned about your tribes in the coming generations. That You may exclude us from the temple. Therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, rather it shall be a witness between us and uh, you and between our generations after us that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifices, with our peace offerings, so that your sons will not say to our sons in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. They said, we're just setting up a memorial. It's a memorial, it's a reminder, and it's a witness between us and you and uh, that, that reminds your children that our children are uh, considered with you guys. Therefore we said it shall come about, also come about if they say this to us or our, to our generations in time to come, then we shall say, see, 
the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, not for burnt offering or for sacrifice, rather it is a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away from following the Lord this day by building an altar for burnt offering or grain offering or for sacrifice beside the altar of the Lord our God which is before His tabernacle. So that should clear everything up. That should clear everything up. And it does. Phineas and the elders accept the explanation that is offered. So man, cooler heads prevailed. Reasonable uh, questions asked, it's answered, makes sense to us, okay, you know, we're done. So when Phineas the priest and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the sons of half Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the sons of Reuben, and of the sons of Gad and of the sons of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this unfaithful act against the Lord. Now you have delivered the sons of Israel from the hand of the Lord. So everything is cool. The satisfaction of Phineas and the elders was sufficient for Israel to hold off on a planned civil war against Reuben and Gad. Um, so yeah, it was close this time, but guess what? Uh, in the book of Judges, something worse is going to happen. There will be a war and uh, they will nearly exterminate um, one of their tribes. So stay tuned for that. So yes, the satisfaction of Phineas, verses 32 through 34. Phineas the son of Eleazar, the priest and the leaders returned from the sons of Reuben and from the sons of Gad and from the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan to the sons of Israel and brought back word to them. And the word pleased the sons of Israel and the sons of Israel blessed God and they did not speak of going up against them in war to destroy the land in which the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad were living. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad called the altar witness. They just give it this name. For they said it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Alright, so happy news there. We get to chapter 23, Joshua prepares to die in much the same manner that Moses prepared to die, by gathering Israel together and teaching them a Bible class. <laughs> All right? What a great thing to do. Okay? He challenges them in the work that yet remains. So let's deal with this here. Verses 1 through 5. It came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years. Now this is key. Enemies on every side. That means the external enemies. That means the perimeter is secure. They have a national boundary ready to go. They still, though, have unfinished business within those boundaries. Tribal business to conduct. The tribal warfare, which they don't do so well at. And that's what Joshua was going to tell them about here. But Joshua was old, advanced in years. Joshua called for all Israel, their elders, their heads, their judges, their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years. I mean, why lie? <laughs> it is what it is. He's honest about it. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is He who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea toward the setting of the sun. So his conquest was marvelous. But this unfinished business that these tribes have failed to do is still causing these issues. 
The Lord your God, He will thrust them out from before you and drive them from before you. You will possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. And you know it's interesting because it's almost like the the speech that these tribes were given, the Eastsiders, about you know failing and, and, and not, not obeying, Joshua's turning right back on them and saying, when are you going to be obedient? When are you going to conquer the rest of your, your territory? You will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Remember we had done a search on to this day when we had uh, introduced this era and uh, created a visual filter. So every time we hit that phrase again, it's going to be highlighted there. Anyway, he's teaching a Bible class. He's challenging them in the work that yet remains. He warns them not to associate with the Canaanites. They are to cling to the Lord. In fact, their walk as unto the Lord should be very intimate. It should be very uh, in fact, the, the vocabulary here on Davak, when you think about a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. That's the language that we have here, that, that we should be cleaving to the Lord. And this was their relationship as a theocracy in the Old Testament. We have uh, something analogous in, with respect to uh, our role as the bride of Christ, our role um, you know, we should be intimate with the Lord as well. In even adapting such terminology as, as cleaving should have some basis of reality in the intimacy of our, of our Christian walk. Alright, let's look at verses 9-13 through because uh, this is so true. Past victories do not guarantee future victories. <laughs> have you noticed that? Right? You know, like when you have those investment commercials that past results are not indication of you know, current, whatever, however they phrase that. Um, each generation must make volitional decisions each passing day. So verses 9 through 13 here, the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. You know, other than that, that defeat at Ai, uh, which they remedied with uh, exposing Achan and, and removing the, those items, they never lost a battle after that. And uh, the only defeats, if you want to call them defeats, is the failure, the sin of omission, by not engaging in the battles that they could have engaged in. No man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Going to war is an act of love. Joshua just told them that. (laughs) Okay? And they haven't lost why are they stopping? Why don't they go conquer the rest that they're called to conquer? Why do they grow complacent? We all do this, by the way. We all grow complacent to say, well, that's good enough. Haven't I done enough? I mean, good enough, right? I mean, okay, we've, got, we, we've conquered most of it, or we've conquered much of it, or we've conquered some of it, or um, yeah, we get complacent with, have I not done enough? Take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, and I think it's that same Davak there, it is, 
uh, these which remain among you and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. So if you start capitulating with the enemy, uh, you're going to find the Lord is your enemy because he's their enemy. What are you doing? They will be a snare and a trap to you and a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. I mean, he is absolutely on target here. He might even, uh, if you thought about it, he could even quote Job. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gave you this land. If you're going to be faithless, if you're going to become like a Canaanite, then you might expect to be removed from this land like the Canaanites were. That's verses 19 or 9 through 13. Then the final three verses here. Joshua warns them that every word of the Lord is faithfully fulfilled. God is faithful each step of the way. And every word. That includes the fact that the Mosaic Covenant is essentially two covenants. The Mosaic Covenant is essentially if this on the one hand for blessing or if that on the other hand for cursing. And if you can think of it, I mean, it's not really schizophrenic, but it, you can kind of think of it that way. Then it's got the blessing half and it's got the cursing half and God is faithful both sides. And you know they're going to line up on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim and they're going to recite these things, six tribes each. This is uh, the reason why he put them through this, uh, this exercise. So Joshua warns them that every word of the Lord is faithfully fulfilled and that will also include their judgment if they are faithless towards him. He will very faithfully discipline them. He will very faithfully assign uh, national discipline through six cycles according to Leviticus 26. He will very faithfully send them off to captivity, very faithfully bring them back from captivity, right? He's faithful each step of the way. They're not going to like the cursing side of God's faithfulness. But even that's a reminder of how faithful God is. So, verses 14 through 16. Behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. <laughs> when it comes right down to it, we are dust. To, to dust we shall return. We're just dirt, okay? And uh, the fact is, is that we that w- what energizes this dirt is our living human spirits and, and you know our living souls. And when we depart this body, it's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Back to the dirt we go. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you, not one of them has failed. Can you point to a a promise that God didn't live up to? Can you point to anything that he commanded that didn't come true? All right, God has been faithful. And he was faithful with their fathers and then 40 years waiting for them to die. He was faithful each step of the way. point out one failed promise. That's all Satan has to do to, to make his claim good that God is a liar. He just has to have God fail in one stated promise. It shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats. <laughs> you know, you think he's going to miss something? You think he's going to not fulfill a threat? When has he not fulfilled a benefit? See, he's always, he's always fulfilled what he said he's going to do. And you think he's not going to fulfill the threats? That's not the kind of God we serve. 
He makes the promise and he's, he makes good on the promise. That includes the threats, the curses. Just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the threats until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. He has said that's what he would do and he's going to do it. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, Notice, not if, but when. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you will perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. And then this generation ought to know. I mean, when, you, when you're dealing with the Exodus generation, to the wilderness generation, to the conquest generation, to the post-conquest generation, each passing generation has to realize that this is how God functions. And if you blow it in your generation, God will judge you and preserve a remnant so that the next generation might, uh, might do better. Which brings us now to chapter 24. Joshua reviews Israel's history. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Why Shechem? Why not just stay at Shiloh? Or why not, you know, where was he in the, in, in the earlier chapter? You know, and can't he just give both messages in the same location? Sometimes it makes a difference if you're going on location uh, to, to present a particular message in a particular place. Shechem's got a, a legacy here uh, that's older than, uh, older than uh, I mean, it goes back to before the, the uh, time in Egypt. It goes back to the location where, uh, you know, Dinah was, was abused and where um, you know, Simeon and Levi had gone in and massacred the inhabitants. I don't think this is accidental. I think, uh, you know, it's like the, the Florida governor, uh, Ron DeSantis, and why he... He had to build a sign. He could have signed it in his office. He could have signed it in Tallahassee. He could have done whatever. But what does he do? He goes to Brandon, Florida. Why is he going to Brandon, Florida? Okay, Because of the name Brandon. And, and he has a big media thing and all the politicians are there and they're doing what they're doing. It's not an accident that this event took place in Brandon. Okay. Anyway, so here's Joshua taking them to Shechem calling for the elders of Israel, for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. Now that's interesting to me too, because we're starting to see that they're um, transitioning from a war footing to a civilian footing, and the the vocabulary here related to uh, really civil government, related to the operation of uh, of a tribe broken down into its clans and its uh, families. So... um, presenting themselves before God. So Joshua's gathering all Israel to Shechem for a final Bible class in full view of Mount Blessing and Mount Cursing. And when you look up Shechem on the map, let me pull this up here. Did you see what just happened there? I went to right-click a single word, and instead what happened was a whole verse got highlighted. That's because the last thing I had selected here was reference. Let me change it to... Shechem. There we go. Now it's just Shechem that's highlighted. Come over here and open up the atlas. Uh, 
And let me go ahead and put it here as the conquest. Or the tribal inheritance. Either map is fine. I'll just leave it this one. All right, so now we zoom in on Shechem. You know what the neat thing about Shechem is? Not the episode with um, Dinah. Not the episode we're talking about much more recently in their history. Look at Shechem. Let's just zoom in here. All right. You can get some topography there. So you see where Shechem is located? Right there in that valley? You see where Shechem... Too dark or too light to see from the back row? Anyway, so there's a road that comes from the south. There's a road that comes from the northeast. There's a road that, road that comes from the northwest. It's sitting there at a little intersection with all these roads. And uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a good spot as far as a crossroads is concerned. But look at the mountains to the, to the south and the north. You got Mount Ebal on the north. That's the cursing mountain. You got Mount Gerizim on the south. That's the blessing mountain. When the tribes were stationed there with six tribes on one and six tribes on the other and, uh, and the, the priests in the middle, the setting was on the outskirts of Shechem. So this is a great place. The way I put it in the notes here, uh, a final Bible class in full view of Mount Blessing and Mount Cursing. Okay, uh, As far as that goes. If you want more on that, look back on chapter 8 when... Uh, the last time they were on these mountains. His introduction as I walk through the Bible from the call of Abraham to the conquest of Canaan. When we start to see here, how does he, how does he begin his last message? Okay? It's interesting to me. How many, how many times do we have a walk through the Bible given in the Bible? Right? Like, uh, like, like Stephen does on his, he doesn't even know it's his deathbed yet. He's, he's just there and giving his sermon and uh, doesn't realize that when he's done, they're going to stone him to death. Okay? But Stephen's giving them a walkthrough, giving them a history of God's dealings with the Jewish people. Moses gave them a walkthrough. Before he died, Joshua's giving them a walkthrough. This happens again and again and again and again. That's why I like, I think, God is blessing this through the Bible year that we're doing here. All right. So Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, that's Yahweh, the Elohim of you guys, Israel. From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. So he's going way back, okay? He's going pre-Genesis 12, going back to Genesis 11 and, and these idolaters beyond the river, living in Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was the center for the moon god and other things. So he, this is how he starts. And it's really going to be not only a history of Israel, but it's a survey of idolatry and faithlessness. So, from ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, namely, that's the Euphrates River, namely Terah, the father of Abraham, the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, led him through all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And so what we've already studied through Genesis, we have the history of Abraham and being called forth to go to the land that God would show him. And he walked through the land and God promised him, this is your, now your land. 
But he didn't literally give it to him. He just promised him. Abraham didn't have a conquest. Abraham didn't conquer like these guys did. Then he says, and I multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Remember, Abraham's the father of a multitude of nations. So he's got Ishmael, and he's got Esau, and he's got um, you know all the sons of Keturah and all that. But Isaac is the personal gift and blessing to Abraham. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. So Esau became a nation before Israel ever became a nation. Esau becomes a mighty nation while Israel slaves in Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward I brought you out. Now nobody there, Joshua was one preaching other than Caleb, you know, was, was literally in Egypt. Or they were, maybe they were 19. They were under the age of 20 at the, uh, at the Exodus. But he still calls them you. All through this, it's you. Because you are Israel. You, you know, literally the living recipients are the, the present generation of Israel. But it's still you. Identifying Israel as a corporate entity from all the way from Abraham and all the way future to the, the millennium and beyond. I think this is useful language. We better be paying attention to this because the church is very similar in the sense that we have a modern day, current, present day, right now, living generation of the church, but we're just a remnant. The bulk of the church is already in glory. 20 centuries of, of the bride of Christ has already preceded us uh, in, the, in the, the glorious uh, presence of Jesus Christ. We're the, you know, I trust we're the rapture generation, we're the last stragglers, we're the slugs waiting for the trumpet. Let's just think about all of these yous uh, that are being thrown at Israel. Um, are, are they accountable for what their parents did, what their grandparents did, what the previous generations did? They have, to, they have to live up to the expectations in their day and age. And if they don't, God will move on to the next generation, putting these guys under the accountability that they bring on themselves. All right, so there's Moses and Aaron. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites. I mean, are we seeing this interplay? He keeps going back and forth between you and your fathers and them, but ultimately he's addressing them as a nation. And whether they were alive yet or not, their parents were, their grandparents were, they were there, you know, in the loins of their parents, if nothing else. They were there. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who live beyond the Jordan. This is on the east side. Again, those Eastenders, the uh, Sihon and Og and those early battles that they had. Those were the battles that the, the wilderness generation had to fight after the Exodus generation was already departed. And they fought with you and I gave them into your hand and you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, Zippor, 
Okay, king of Moab arose and fought against Israel and sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. That that episode, I would love to spend more time on that. I think Balaam was a legitimate Gentile prophet. His oracles are profoundly messianic. They coincide well with the oracles of Jacob, the oracles of Moses, the the oracles they're going to follow when we get into the judges and the and the kings era of history. God God gave himself both a Jewish and a Gentile witness to the coming Messiah. And Balaam was the Gentile prophet. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam, so he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You know, previously, God listened to Balaam, and he blessed and cursed, and Balaam uh, became quite notorious uh, as a, uh, a prophet in this way. The four prophet prophet, I call him. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Now we're starting to get to, you know, the living memory now of the, the, the generation that he's actually talking to. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and the cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them. You are eating of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. And I think that was more true maybe on the western side than the eastern side, but maybe it just applied to all of them regardless. They're now living in towns they didn't build, houses they didn't build, eating food they didn't plant. And, uh, you know, that's fine for the first year, but you've got to keep those farms up. You've got to replant next year's crop, and you've got other work to do. And before you start getting busy with that, there's still the unfinished conquest, the unfinished tribal conquest that needs to be uh, finished. Anyway... Something similar happens when they come back from captivity too, by the way. They're supposed to be rebuilding the temple and instead they get all busy with their homes and their farms and their vineyards and their, their bios life and they, the, the temple's sitting there unfinished. So I gave you land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have, not, and you have lived in them. You were eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. You know, think about our nation when Whoever takes our land over when we're wiped out and they move into our houses and they drive our cars. Somebody's going to like a purple car. <laughs> Somebody, I hope he plays gravel. He'll find, uh, he'll find some material there. All right. Now, therefore. So his introduction was a walk through the Bible from the call of Abraham to the conquest of Canaan. You were idolaters in Ur of the Chaldees. I gave Abraham the promise of land, but no land. I gave him Isaac. I gave Isaac the promise of land, but no land. I gave him Jacob and Esau. I gave Esau a land grant, but sent Jacob to Egypt, where you became idolaters again. Okay, we haven't re- read that yet, but notice in verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods, that is the idols, which your fathers served beyond the river, they're still hanging on to some of those. And in Egypt, they're still hanging on to some of those. 
What, you know, idols that they plundered from the Egyptians? The Egyptians were very happy to give them gold and silver and plunder and loot, and, and they held on to them? And some of the idols that they held on to? Why didn't they melt them down? Why didn't they donate them to the tabernacle? Why didn't they redeem them for the glory of the Lord? Why did they keep them as idols? Because they were idolaters, that's why. I brought you out of Egypt and gave you the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the patriarchs died without receiving the promise. These guys received the promise. They entered into the land. Why do they think they're so special? (laughs) Why do they think that they're somehow greater than Abraham or greater than Isaac or greater than Jacob? That, uh, you know, if they start to get prideful, that, uh, that they're the, you know, the bee's knees or whatever, that they're the, the, the apple of the Lord's eye. They've they got to think again. They've got to stay faithful. Their idolatry will expose them. All right, so like Moses did, Joseph lays it out in an either-or message. Remember when Moses did that? Moses just laid it out. I present before you the blessing or the curse. Choose you this day. And here's Joshua's turn. To, to, you know, imitate his best Moses speech and choose you this day. So, fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and truth. If you're serving the Lord God, then that means no more idolatry because commandment number one and commandment number two. <laughs> I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. You shall not worship them or serve them. So put away the gods. Put away every idol. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, if that's, just, if that's too much to ask, the Creator God of the universe that brought you out of the Egypt and through the wilderness and into this land and conquered every enemy, if it's too much to ask that you serve Him and Him alone, well then choose. Quit sitting on the fence. Quit trying to have both. Quit trying to have a public life that's worshiping Yahweh and then going home to your tent and pulling out these, these idols and doing whatever you're doing with whoever you're doing it with. So just pick one. Pick something. If it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. And, and also this whole thing, the the... the Gods beyond the river and the gods of Egypt, they don't play nicely together. Pick, you know, <laughs> pick one of them. Don't try to have both Chaldean and Egyptian pantheons. All right. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, if you want to be the, the true traditionalist, go back to Abraham's heritage. Or the gods of uh, the Egyptians, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, that, that final little phrase is what lands on all the, the doormats and refrigerator magnets and whatever else. But it's the, the, the first part of the verse, the first part of the really 14 and 15 here. It's pretty brutal. It's pretty blunt. You know, you want to be, you want to serve the gods of the Amorites? Do that. But quit trying to play both sides of the fence. Quit trying to, to do both. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, he's, he's retired. He's done. He's through being the national leader. He's just going to go home and live out his days with his house, 
his sons, his grandsons, whatever, the, the greater house of, of uh, Joshua. So he gives them the either or message. And the people promise to serve the Lord. Okay? Which is common. I mean, it happens. Pep rallies, you get excited. Uh, tent revivals, you know, there's a lot of emotions. There's a lot of um, intentions. Even Moses got a good, a good intention when he was first giving them the law. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And uh, yeah, they didn't. <laughs> okay? So the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Oh, we would never do that. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Yeah, you're right. Yahweh is your Elohim and he did this. He brought you up of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we pass. So they're agreeing. They're testifying to what they've witnessed. Agreeing with uh, Joshua's message. And Yahweh, the Lord, drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. So that's their declaration. So now a couple of things. Idolatry is always condemned, but now now the God of truth is going to... Now it's a double whammy, if you will, because now... When they do become idolatrous, they're going to be judged for the idolatry and they'll be judged for, for breaking this vow, for lying with respect to this promise that they're making, this statement. Joshua warns them against forsaking the Lord because of his jealousy and points out that they still were in possession of their Egyptian idols. You know, you talk a good game, but cough it up now, choke it up. I want to see you throw those idols on the fire. I want to see you surrender them now. Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. Our God is a consuming fire. That's what Hebrews tells us. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. I mean, if you name the name of the Lord, He knows those that are His. He holds you accountable. He'll deal with you as with sons. He, you will come under His hand of loving discipline. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. You keep talking this good game. Why haven't you put them away yet? Why are you still in possession of them? You know, you swear, you swear, you swear. You're, you're, you're done with drugs. You're never taking drugs again, but you're holding on to the crack pipe or whatever. You're, you know, you're holding on to your, your favorite bong or whatever you do. Um, are you serious about it? Turn it in. Give it up. Let me see you here. They say we will. Well, all right. So you say. So Joshua makes a covenant with the people. So he's warned them against forsaking the Lord because his jealousy and points out they were still in possession of their Egyptian idols. Joshua recorded Israel's promise and established a memorial stone to bear witness to their intentions. You know, he's going to be dead and gone here soon. So he gets it in writing. He carves it in stone. He puts it in a, in a memorial so that after he's gone, it'll bear witness against them. 
Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Now this doesn't get as much attention as, as the larger elements of Mosaic law or larger elements of, say, the Palestinian, uh, the, the land covenant or the other components of, of the covenant. This is a separate covenant this, that, that uh, Joshua was making with them. Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. Look how literate he is. Don't, don't listen to the liberals that tell you that Moses and Joshua and none of these guys could write. They all could write. They were very literate. In this past weekend they discovered that thing there on Mount Ebal and even the unbelievers are getting excited about it because it's so historical and it's so transformative. And they found the, uh, the curse uh, uh, writing in an alphabetic script. All right. So Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord. Do you know that stones can hear? <laughs> well, and, and blood can cry out from the ground. Okay? And, uh, you know, however much of this is obviously metaphoric, but the principle is, is uh, whatever you've said and you think it's been in secret, and, and God hears. Okay? And this stone can bear witness. For it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his inheritance. Recording the promise, establishing a memorial stone to bear witness to their intentions. And said, all right, you may, you may go. You are dismissed. Finally then, the book closes with the death of Joshua also the death of Eliezer, also the death of that entire generation. Now clearly Joshua didn't write this. He didn't, uh, just like Moses didn't write of his death and the events that followed. We don't have any problem with a later editor coming along. If, uh, if the bulk of this book was written by Joshua, that's fine. Uh, and perhaps, you know, um, one of the early judges or one of the early prophets of the, of the era of the judges finished this final uh, paragraph here of the book. It came about after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And that's, that's helpful for us. It helps us to, to span the, uh, the years there from the Exodus to this date. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Sarah. That was the land that he requested, the territory that was gifted to him, which is in the hill country of Ephraim on the north of Mount Gash. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. You know, we think about that. We think about the passing of a generation. And, uh, and, and right now we're rapidly losing the last final little straggling remnants of our World War II uh, soldiers. There's still a handful, but not many. And, uh, and even most of the Vietnam era vets are, are gone now. It's, the, the, it's, it's my generation. It's the, it has the largest component of, of VFW is the, is the Desert Storm vets. Because uh, we're, we're now outnumbering the, the Vietnam vets. Not because there were more of us, but because they've, they've died off. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, when, when that generation passes, like the Depression 
generation, the World War II generation, when you lose that element of your culture, the next generation does not have the same worldview, the same perspective, the same, unless they've been saturated with Bible doctrine and trained up in the, in the divine viewpoint of the Lord. You're going to lose something when the generation departs. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt. Remember those? Man, they've been toting those around for a long time. Okay, Finally get around to burying those. Uh, and, and at Shechem, from the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. In fact, the plot of land, the burial site, there's a well there that is, will still be noteworthy by the time Jesus is standing there talking to the, uh, the Samaritan woman. But they become the inheritance of Joseph's sons. And Eliezer, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gabeah. Uh, of Phineas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So now we're going to move from Aaron to Eliezer to, uh, to Phineas. We're going to have the third generation now of high priests. Moving on to the book of Judges. Okay, well that gets us through that. Coming back Sunday, we'll have the book of Judges. And let me close this. All right, so this is era three. Get through the book of Joshua, get into the month of April. And then move on to Judges. April 1st, April 2nd, Sunday, April 3rd. There we go, Judges 1. So we're going to have seven classes in Judges. That's day 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99. Seven classes in Judges. That means four on Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. Judges is knocked out in, uh, in one week. So stay tuned for that, and then we'll come back a week from Sunday for Ruth. Oh, I'm looking forward to Ruth. Okay, Lord willing, rapture pending. That's what we've got. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. We pray not only for, for those of us here locally in this local church, but also, Father, uh, as we're starting to learn more and more of our brothers and sisters uh, around the country and around the world are uh, are getting uh, jumping on board and and uh, tracking with the daily reading and and uh, following with the messages. Uh, we thank you for that. And you know, Father, that's not our, uh, our our purpose. We're not trying to build some empire or anything. We're just uh, making these freely available on a grace basis to uh, to whosoever will. Um, fundamentally, we're we're shepherding the lampstand right here at Austin Bible Church, and we thank you for that. So it's, uh, it's grace upon grace, Father, as you bless this flock and through us as we bless others. We, uh, we just give you the praise and the glory, Father. Continue to provide. We've completed 13 weeks now. That's one quarter of this year. And uh, by your grace, Father, the second, third, and fourth quarters, likewise, will we'll go forth for the glory of your Son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.